Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Good to see everybody, and, and uh, I'm really excited about this morning. Uh, I think it's gonna be a great, uh, a, a great discussion. We're obviously a little different format this morning, and so uh, you'll get to see what it's all about in, in just one second. We're, we're finishing up, this is the last week, in our crucial conversations. And I would say this, if, if, you, if you've missed any of them, I would go back and watch. And, and one of the things that I love about it is, yes, it's about a particular topic each week, but I think more than that, I think you, you'll kind of see the, the culture of our church. You'll get a real feel for the culture of our church and who we are as God's people, and specifically in this dynamic at Cedar Valley. And so this morning, you know, we've done the uh, holy sexuality. We did... Uh, uh, we did one on, I, I wasn't here very often, you know, so we did, we did one on mental health, we did racial, rec, a biblical uh, perspective on racial reconciliation, last week we did one on mental health, and this week we're going to do one on the women's role in the church, and, and I want to say this just to um, kind of set the stage for this, here, here's, my, here's my deep desire, my deep desire is that you would understand what we do believe the women's role in the church is, but uh, not so that you know what our position is. I want you to know this, that we don't just willy-nilly come up with stuff. We go, hey, you know what's going on in the culture right now? And everybody in the culture thinks this is kind of cool, so we're just going with that. You know, we really, we really want to be a biblically-based church, whether the culture likes it or not, whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, we're, we're going to hold, uh, adhere to the scriptures. And so that's what we're doing this morning. And so we have a really special guest, and this is going to bring some great clarity and I think um, just... Um, theology to it, I think. And so uh, Hillary and her husband, Greg, raise your hand, Greg, right up front. And their two genius kids are sitting down there with them. I mean, these are really smart kids. And so uh, uh, introduce yourself for us, Hillary. And, and give us, uh, you know, you won't say it, so I'm going to tell you to say it. <laughs> but give us some of your, your educational expertise and educational background as well, because I think it's germane to our conversation. Great. Well, hello, everyone. I'll say hello instead of good morning. Um, my name is Hillary, and uh, I did my master's degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the Chicago area, which is where I'm from. And uh, I did it in theological studies with an emphasis in New Testament exegesis. And then I teach at North Central University. I teach Bible and theology classes. And I also teach a women in ministry leadership class um, at North Central as well. Right on. So I think that's going to be so relevant to, to our conversation. Um, let, me, let me just set the stage for you in this regard. Within the church, there are two theological views, essentially. Uh, there is the um, complementarian view. And the complementarian view says God made us men and women, and, and uh, we have different giftings. Um, they're, they're all biblical giftings, but they're giftings within the church that are complementary, meaning not the same, specifically meaning Men have these gifts and can do these things, and women have these gifts and can do these things. That is a complementarian view. On the flip side, we are an egalitarian church. And, and let me just say this. Those who are of the, of the complementarian view, it's not like they just came up with, with, with it willy-nilly. That is their biblical understanding, and we make room for that. Um, we are uh, what's called an egalitarian theology, and egalitarian theology says men and women, egalitarian, we are, we are equal in our giftings, and we're going to look at this, and so men and women have a lot of the same gifts and can do a lot of the same things. Uh, before we get too far into it, I, I will just say this, and this is just, this isn't a biblical thought, this is my thought, which is rarely a biblical thought, and so uh, my, my thought is this, I kind of dis, uh, describe my beliefs in, in three tiers. 
I have in the smallest circle are my die for beliefs. I only have about four of those that I, that I think we really want to just, things that we'll die for. The, the fact that there is one true God, I think we would all agree on that and we're willing to die for that. Uh, that, there, that Jesus Christ is God. Right? He proved that when he walked out of the grave, that, that salvation is by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. We'll, I'll die for that belief. And then where we get all this from is number four, the authority of the scriptures, that the, authority, the scriptures have authority. Those four beliefs. The next circle out for me then are those that I would defend. This is one of those beliefs I would defend. I would, I would defend our egalitarian view, but I would not die for this. So listen, we have brothers and sisters in Christ at, at various churches that don't share this belief with us, and we would say, brothers and sisters in Christ, we will fellowship with you, absolutely. It's just that this is the way we, we do it in our church based on what we see in the scripture, right? So here's what I wanna do. I'm just going for the jugular right away. I'm just like, right? And, and you'll see this verse, up on this, but, I, but there are some passages that I think we just have to wrestle with, and, and then I'll let you run with it. This is the first verse that I want you to see. This is Paul writing to Timothy. This is 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I will say this. This is one of those where you're probably going to want to take a lot of notes or go back, because the references are all over, or go back and watch the message again. But I want to read this to you, 1 Timothy. Very clear, it seems. Women should learn quietly and submissively. Further, he says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. Now, we can say for differing reasons that we agree with that still or not, but here comes the biblical principle that Paul wrote behind it. It feels very much like a biblical principle. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. Further, he says, it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. And so Hillary, help me out because this sounds like a biblical principle. That's why a woman is not allowed to teach in the church. How do you address that? How do you look at this passage? How do you, how do you understand this? Great. Well, is it okay if I talk? According to that, I probably shouldn't. Yes, right on. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, shoot. Let's just vote. How do, we, how do we feel? Can we just, okay, yes, go ahead. Okay, awesome. Um, well, before we tackle this, um, I know that there are many of you that are experienced readers in the Bible, and some of you are brand new to reading the Bible. So I just want to level the playing field, and let's talk about how to interpret the Bible. Um, so first of all, we're always talking in biblical studies about context. You've heard Pastor Neil talk about this. We talk about literary and historical context. When you pick up a book even today, you do this intuitively without even realizing it. So when we're talking about literary context, we're looking at the genre, we're looking at the grammar and the syntax, we're looking at what did the author want to say and how did that audience hear it? And then with historical context, we're looking at the culture and the history of that time. So you do this intuitively, like if, you, if something's wrong with your car and you go into your glove compartment and get the car manual, you know how to read the car manual. You're looking for a specific thing on a, on a specific page and you're looking for instructions to fix it. You're not really reading it cover to cover. Maybe some of you do, I don't. Um, and then, but if you pick up a novel, you pick up a work of fiction and you know you're gonna sit for hours, you're gonna maybe read it cover to cover. You're looking for the plot line, character development, foreshadowing, figurative language. You intuitively know to read them differently, right? Well, with the Bible, we do the same thing. And 1 Timothy is in the genre of a letter or an epistle. Letters, all scholars agree, are very situational texts. They communicate normative, timeless truths 
Well, at the same time, there's also situational text because the author here, Paul, is writing to his colleague and protege, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus. There is a particular situation happening in that church. So the way that the discerning reader figures out, is this a timeless truth or is this normative or is this situational? Sometimes it's common sense. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul commands Timothy um, that winter is coming, go to Troas, get my cloak and bring my scrolls and my, uh, and my parchments. Well, we know that we cannot fulfill that command, right? right? We can't go back in time 2,000 years and fulfill this command. So common sense, we know that we can't do that. Also, another thing we look for is if there's variation in the author. If there is a little bit, not that he's contradicting himself, but there's variation given the context or the situation that he's writing to. My proposal to you today is that 1 Timothy 2 is a situational text in which we, we figure out what the principles are that we should take from. So, can, And can I throw this in? Because yeah. I think sometimes we talk about, uh, this, is a, this is a great example. This passage is written for us. Do you agree it's written yeah, for it's us? it's written for us. Question, is it written to us? No. Okay, so, and I think that's part of what you're saying. Yes. That oftentimes the scriptures are absolutely written for us. They are truth, but they weren't specifically written to the body at Cedar Valley Church or to you wherever you live. Exactly, exactly. So when you were reading 1 Timothy 2, the discerning reader, the person that might have experience reading Paul, there's a couple issues that come up. First of all, he talks about Eve's sin, and he's downplaying Adam's sin. But if you've ever read Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, it's all about Adam's sin, right? Also written by Paul. Also written by Paul. It's all about Adam's sin. Like, we all sin in Adam. Here, he seems to be downplaying the sin of Adam and talking about Eve. So what's going on there? And then lastly, he says that women will be saved through childbirth? What? <laughs> I, thought, I thought women were saved, all people were saved by grace through faith in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. What happened to that? So there's, some, so there's some clues here that we need to use some discernment as we're reading. So let's apply the principles, literary and historical context. If you back up to verse 8, he's addressing plural men. What he's doing here, the whole letter of 1 Timothy, is he's addressing false teaching that is infiltrating the church. And he's telling men and women what their behavior should be in order for the false teaching to not flourish and for the gospel to flourish in their community. So the men are told to lift holy hands and pray without anger. Well, we don't make men in this church raise their hands every time that they pray. We know that there, this is a situation. He also is addressing the women in chapter, uh, in verse 9 and 10. He tells the women to not wear gold braided hair um, and not draw attention to themselves by a wealthy appearance. He tells them, no, that your good deeds is how you show piety to the Lord. Well, we don't, maybe, maybe some of you have braided hair in here. I have a gold Stop, wedding ring. Stop, just wait a minute. We ain't having <laughs> no. this. Well, we, yeah. we know that there's something situational here, right? Well, we need to apply those same principles to verses 11 and 12. And if you look at 11 and 12, to me it seems that the, the, the learning with quietness and submission corresponds to the teaching with usurping authority. So a groundbreaking thing in the culture of this time is that men were allowed to learn, women generally weren't. Here Paul is saying, let the women learn, but there's a manner in which you should learn. And elsewhere in Philippians and Ephesians, Paul tells all people 
to submit to one another. So this submission thing is nothing new, but there's a manner in which they should be learning. And then with the teaching, um, there's a very difficult word here in the Greek. Um, the Greek word is authentain, and it, we translate it authority over. The problem is this Greek word, this is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. And the range of meaning is so big. It can mean author of, it can mean dominate, usurp authority, even to murder or have violence with somebody. And the scholars, if you read 10 different commentaries on 1 Timothy, you would read 10 different opinions about what this means. I think the best way to translate this passage is, uh, I am not permitting a woman to teach so as to dominate a man. In verses 11 and 12, um, he moves to a singular woman. In 8 and 9 and 10, he's talking to plural men and women. In 11 and 12, he moves to a singular woman and man, which is interesting. So scholars, again, are divided about what he means by that. Um, and then I think this is talking about dominating, particularly Timothy's authority. There's clearly a problem with the women in this church. And Timothy is a young man. He's a young man, probably about 30 at this point. Let me read to you some things about the culture of Ephesus that I think are incredibly helpful to understand here. If you go back to Acts 19 and 20, we learn about the city of Ephesus. And there is a temple of Artemis that is a huge feature in Ephesus. Um, the Temple of Artemis is a tourist attraction. It's considered the second wonder of the world. And I'm going to read to you four things that we know about the, the worship at Artemis, and I want you to listen for how it helps us understand this. First of all, the cult of Artemis is a female-only cult. We, only females were allowed to be priests in this temple. Artemis, as the legend goes, was the mother or the author of life. It is the legend goes that her mother, Leto, gives birth to Artemis first, and then Artemis helps deliver her twin brother, Apollo. And she becomes the goddess of childbearing. And they pray to her in order to be saved from childbearing, saved from death from childbearing. And it also becomes this myth that she's dominant because she was born first over her twin brother, Apollo. Number three, women dressed like Artemis in order to show their piety to Art Artemis. Artemis dressed with plaited, braided hair, with gold and plurals and these expensive clothes, and they dressed like her in order to show their faithfulness to her. And then number four, women learned in the Artemisium, and they, uh, by chanting loudly and reciting prayers in order to attract the attention of the tourists. Do you hear how much this actually explains what is happening? He's saying, don't show your piety to the old way, and the old way that you showed piety to Artemis. Your good deeds are how you show faithfulness to God. And he says, no, Adam was actually born first. And to hear in the 13 and 15, he's talking about, he's, the emphasis is deception. And actually in the Greek, he says, for example, he goes back to Genesis as an illustration of what the women are, the women are being deceived just the way Eve was being deceived. And so the idea is all of this was going on in Ephesus at the time. And so the individual who picked up this letter, that the letter was written to them, you didn't have to explain any of this to them. Yeah. They had significantly greater understanding that we have today. And it was running through the back of their head when they read this. They were saying, oh, of course he's saying that because here's what's going on in the Temple of Artemis. Yeah. It's and then the time so culturally Right. And written. then the timeless truth is nobody 
women, uh, women in this time, nobody should usurp the authority that God has placed. You're the lead pastor. It would be wrong for me to usurp your authority. It would be wrong for me to usurp Pastor Vicky's right. authority. And that right. we should all learn with teachability, with peacefulness. Those are some timeless principles that we can take from the text. Okay, so not off the hook yet. Yeah. Let me go to this passage. This is 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Now listen to this. Women, it just says, you should be silent. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It's not proper for them to speak, it says very clearly here. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have questions, verse 35, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Amen. Go. <laughs> um, okay, so 1 Corinthians. This is also a letter from Paul. And if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, the church in Corinth is a messed Train wreck. up church, you guys. <laughs> messed up. And Paul, throughout 1 Corinthians, we call this an ad hoc letter because he addresses things ad hoc as necessary. And so he's hearing things about the church and he's received a letter from them and he's systematically addressing things as they come. And often he's quoting from them. He quotes from them and then he corrects them. So we see this all throughout the letter. Um, so if we're doing literary context here, one thing that we have to note is in chapter 14, he's saying women should be silent. In chapter 11, he had just told women that they should pray and prophesy publicly. Prophecy is speech. Speaking. It is speaking for God to the people. He had just told them that they should do that with their heads covered. That's a whole other topic that we'll have to address again, at a different time. Again, which we no longer require. We no longer require. So where he said women should have their head covered, we, we don't require that anymore. Yes, but he is saying to speak. Yes. But then here in 14, he's saying not to. So the discerning reader is going to know Paul, we give Paul too much credit. He's not going to contradict himself. So something's happening. Something's happening here. Complementarians and egalitarians alike have to figure this out because we acknowledge that he's saying two different things here. So there's a few options. Some complementarians will refer back to chapter 11 and say that Paul was actually referring to private prayer and prophecy. Personally, I don't think that that works because he even says the word public in chapter 11. It's very right. much talking about a worship gathering, so I don't think that works. Another option is that in chapter 14, he's talking about disruptive speech. Um, some believe that women and men were sitting separately in the churches. And because men had been allowed to learn, women were new to learning. And as they're learning, they're, they have a lot of questions. So it seems that perhaps maybe the women were asking questions to their husbands across the room. Earl, which was, <laughs> Earl, help me out. That's right. Super disruptive. Because in chapter 14, he is, he is bringing order to the chaos that's happening there. So that's an option. Another option, which is honestly the one that I favor, is that he is in this, in verses 34 and 35, that he's actually quoting from the Corinthians letter themselves. Because if you look at the Greek in 34 and 35, it doesn't sound like Paul. One of the things he says is that he says that the law says this. The law doesn't say it. So if the, if the Jewish law doesn't say that women should be silent, what is he talking about there? I think he's talking about a Roman law. It seems very likely that he's quoting from a Roman leader um, named Cato the Elder, who in a speech, he even says, he's like bashing the women's behavior and says, why are women talking to other people's husbands? They should ask their own husbands at home. 
that sounds a lot like what he's quoting mm. here. And, uh, and then he corrects them in verse 36. He says, or do you think God's word originated with you, Corinthians? Are you the only ones to whom it was given? He seems to be correcting them. So regardless of what option you take, there seem, this seems to be a situational text. He seems to be correcting some behavior because clearly in chapter 11, women were speaking in yeah. their church gatherings. All right, so let me ask you this. And I know, I already, I can just tell you this. What's killing her right now is 35 minutes. I know that's yes. killing you. So yes, like this is the, the, the course of an entire semester and I yes. get that. Um, and so here's one of the things that I always think we have to ask. We can, look, you guys can make the script. Whenever people say to me, well, you know, Neil, you can make the scripture say whatever you want to make it say. That to me, I'm just going to tell you, when people say that, that's code to me for I don't really know the Bible. And so my question is always, well, give me a specific, right? This is one of those. So what I'm asking you is, okay, maybe you can kind of make that say what you, whatever you, is there anything in the scripture that would actually affirm women that would say, no, 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 it, it's not just where he's addressing it here. These passages of scripture affirm women. Awesome. Thank you for asking. Yes, there are. Let's, I want to give you a wider vision theologically for how we can think about women in the role of leadership in the church. If we go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, Pastor Neil, you actually did a great job of talking about this with sexuality. When we learned um, at Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden, we see a beautiful picture of human flourishing. We see male and female created in God's image. We learned the Hebrew word ezer, that a woman was created from Adam's side. So not God above him nor the animals below him were suitable, but he gets somebody from his side, somebody equal to him. And Ezer is used for God or the military. It's somebody in a position of strength who comes as an ally. So they are side by side fulfilling the creation mandate to rule and steward the earth. This is the beautiful picture of partnership that we have in Genesis 1 and 2. Then in Genesis 3, sin enters so again, and spoils just to, the whole thing. To reiterate that, sorry to interrupt, yeah. but that was all before the fall. All before the fall. The fall in Genesis 3, this is the place that we see hierarchy and authority come into play. This is not God's design. This is not his intention. This is an aspect of the fall. And then we see that he mercifully closed them. He makes a covenant with Israel. Redemption is coming. But then in the Old Testament, we even have examples of women leading. We have Miriam, who leads Israel in worship. We have Deborah in the book of Judges, who is not only a judge, she's a military leader, and she's a prophet. We have Huldah, in 2 Chronicles 34, Huldah is interesting because King Josiah, they discover, they rediscover the book of the law and he wants to have it interpreted. So they send for Huldah, a married prophetess, to interpret the law for them. What's so interesting is that Isaiah, the prophet, was alive at this time. They don't send for Isaiah, they send for Huldah to interpret the law. So we have Old Testament examples. And then um, as, as the Old Testament continues on, we see evil, we see sin, and it causes the people to long for a day when God is going to make everything right, that he is going to restore paradise. And when Jesus comes, the effect of salvation is to roll back the effects of the fall. 
So listen to what Jesus does for women. Just buckle up and listen to all of these examples. Anna, in the beginning of Luke, is a prophetess. She's the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and she's the first evangelist, the first to spread that news. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. In the Old Testament, we only have examples of male prophets who anointed the king. Here, Jesus is anointed as king by a woman. In Luke 8, we see that women, uh, Joanna and Susanna, travel with Jesus and his disciples. They're effectively disciples, and they fund his ministry. They financially support him. In Luke 10, we have the the story of Mary and Martha. This is a story where um, Jesus and his disciples come to Bethany, and they go to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Martha is busy fulfilling her domestic duties. Um, she is taking care of Jesus and disciples, and she's upset with Mary because Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, and Jesus commends her for it. What's interesting is that in Acts 22, Paul says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This is a rabbinic phrase where Paul is sitting at the feet of Gamaliel in order to become a rabbi himself. Here, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus in order to become a rabbi herself. Many people call her the first theologian because she was sitting at his feet. And then when we move to the resurrection, all four gospels note that women were the ones to find the empty tomb. Women were the one, the first ones to experience the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus entrusts the women to take the message of the resurrection to the disciples. And so the resurrection is a cornerstone, a key piece, something you would die for with the faith, and he entrusts this message to women. And Mary Magdalene, throughout church history, became known as the apostle to the apostles because of the way that Jesus entrusted her with this message. In Acts 21, we have Philip, he says that he has four daughters who are prophets and are, are speaking on behalf of God. In Romans 16, Romans 16 is the last chapter of uh, of Romans, and he's greeting a ton of people. It's an easy chapter to kind of just skip over. But here, he greets 29 people, and 10 of them are women. Phoebe is a deacon, and she's carrying this letter. And as somebody who's carrying the letter, that means she's also entrusted with explaining the letter. So Romans is a tough letter, and... Phoebe is the first person to explain and exegete the book of Romans. Uh, Priscilla, we meet Priscilla. She's called a co-worker. Just like all of these men, all of these other leaders in the church are called co-workers. Priscilla and her husband Aquila, they're they're teachers. And um, Priscilla's name is always mentioned first, probably because she was the more prominent teacher among Priscilla and Aquila. Then we have Junia. Junia is said to be most excellent among the apostles. So she is an apostle. Junia is actually um, the Latin for Joanna. So Joanna that we met in Luke 8 might be the same person. And we have another group of a bunch of women, but to summarize, we have 10 women, seven are recognized by their ministry, and actually more women than men are recognized by their ministry. So we have women who are apostles, teachers, prophets, deacons, hard workers, co-laborers alongside men in the early church. This is why I think 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14 are situational, because there's variation with Paul. 
we see that there are women all over the place. And if you look at the book of Acts, I know that we had some passages um, in Acts. Acts all over has women. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is so careful to place women at each stage as the church is expanding. In Acts 1, we have women, Acts 1.14, we have women present. In Acts 2, when they receive the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter quotes from Joel 2. And he says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all, upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Even on my servants, men and women alike, they will prophesy. In Jerusalem, there's crowds of men and women. In Samaria, there's men and women. Philippi, um, we meet a woman, Lydia. Lydia is, uh, is at the city gate. We learn that there's not a synagogue in Philippi. And you had to have 10 men in order to have a synagogue in, uh, in a city, so there, there's not enough Jewish presence. I think it's so interesting that you had to have 10 men to have a synagogue, but you only need to have one female convert in order to start a Christian church in the city of Philippi, and she leads it in her home. We have Thessalonica. There's men and women who are converting. Berea, Athens, Corinth, Acts 21. In every city, he names men and women who are part of the church's expansion. So, if we want to look at what I would call normative, timeless texts, I would propose a couple to you. Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 28. Pastor Amos actually preached this a couple, uh, a couple months ago. In Galatians 3, Paul is talking about the differences between the Old and the New Covenant. And in verse 28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. So, so no matter your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, or your gender, we all inherit the gifts of the covenant equally. And in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about how there are different kinds of gifts, but the Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but it's the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God, and to each one, a manifestation of the Spirit is given. It's the Spirit who distributes the gifts. Men and women inherit the gifts of the covenant equally, and then they have the same foundational qualifications for ministry as men, the power of the Holy Spirit. So this brings us back to a vision of creation. We are created side by side as God's image with the same job to do, to proclaim the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is our qualification not gender. Amen. Hold it out there. Boom. <laughs> All right, so, so good, right? So um, do this for us just briefly. Yeah. Briefly now, and, and again, this is a semester. You yes. know, I mean, like, you know. I'm skipping a lot of details. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but help us out here just briefly. As a result of what we've talked about today, and as a result of that we've looked at the scripture, and as a result of the fact that we are a church on a mission. If you're new and you don't do this, know this, man, we are not a fraternity, we are not a social organization, we're a movement of God's people on mission. What now, just specifically, briefly, what would you say to women after this? Yes, women, I want you to remember, if you walk away, remember anything I say. I want you to remember, it's the spirit who distributes the gifts. The Spirit decides. Yeah. 
Some of you are called to be pastors. Amen. You're called to be deacons. Amen. You're called to be prophets, administrators. It is the spirit who decides, and it is the church, the body of Christ. Our job is to facilitate this and to honor the gifts that the spirit has given. Amen. Now, I think that we also need to do well in our church to speak life into people and to call out these gifts that we see in people. To be honest, I would never have been a teacher and taught the word of God if it wasn't for people who saw this gift in me and encouraged me and spoke life into me. So let's be a body of Christ who actually sees gifts and calls them out in people and, and we're a church that honors and respects that gift. I think that we grieve the Holy Spirit and we limit the kingdom of God when we, when we hinder Amen. the gifts of the Spirit. Amen. Women do not be hindered. Let the kingdom of God flourish today. And this is not a, this is not like a chick power. This is no. not that message. That, that's no. not what we're talking about no. here. We're talking about this is the body of Christ. Yeah. This is the body of Christ. And so why do we limit the effectiveness of the body of Christ? We are a church on mission. Yeah. And so again, I would say this. Look, if, if, if it's a complementarian church, if you have complementarian theology, we're, we're not saying you can't go to heaven. We're, we're not saying we're going to be at war with those churches. We're just saying we do this because it is a biblical understanding because we're people first and foremost of the word. And so having understood the word, right, to fulfill the mission that God has for the church, Yes, we, we, we totally agree. So I know this is frustrating for you. I know it's 30 to 35 minutes. I know, sister, you killed it today. <laughs> Would you guys give her a big hand? Thank you. Thank, thank, you, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. Great, thank you, Greg. And so can we do this, church? Man, I'll tell you this. This is one of the reasons it's just such a... It's just such a terrible job to be the pastor of this church because people like this sit here every Sunday. You know, and Alan, and you, you, you know, and it's just like, you're always like, oh man, what did I say something stupid? But that is such a valuable part of our body. And, and, and I hope that everybody's blessed by that. And you need to, some of you are gonna need to wrestle with that and you need to think about that. And, and I, don't, I don't know, like we try, to, we try to live this out. Pastor Vicki is our Senior Associate of Ministry Operations. Pastor Vicki oversees all of our pastoral staff. Okay, that, that's how we feel about that. And so, listen, church, like, wrestle with this, wrestle with this, but here's the thing. Could we still possibly disagree on this? Sure, we could. Ain't gonna divide us. We're not gonna be divided. We just are not gonna be divided. Father, thank you for this morning. Father, thank you for Hillary, and what a powerful word, just such good word from her this morning. We're so grateful. God, I pray that you would help us to marinate on that, to, to wrestle with that, Father, to, to receive that. I pray that you would just constantly be speaking to this church. God, I'm so grateful for the work of your Holy Spirit. I'm so grateful for transformed lives. God, we acknowledge that you have given us a mission. We are anything but a social gathering. And so, Father, now, as we leave this building, let us be about the mission. As we leave this building, God, let, allow us to go be the church to a lost and hurting world that desperately needs a Savior. Bless us in that endeavor, O oh Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Great to see everybody. Have a great week. See you next Sunday.